Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle, and I represent the political center. In the studio today, with me on the right, John Dougal. Hey, good to be with you, and good to be outside the snow. Yeah, and Shireen Gorbani on the left. Hello. Hi, listeners. Hope you're staying safe and warm. Shireen, did you notice that John's wearing a tie today? I did notice. <laughs> Looking sharp, oh, John. It's painful. It is painful. <laughs> I am not a fan of ties. <laughs> but um, it's the legislative session, and you're in the executive branch, a statewide elected official, got to wear that tie. Yeah, yeah. You're in a smart outfit too, Natalie. Oh, do you you're have nice. a busy day? I do. It's a, you know, legislative session leading a policy institute. Yeah. Yeah. Busy. Uh, okay. You look great too. Yeah. yeah thanks, well, everyone. Not, let's do that. Let's <laughs> throw the love. Uh, let's talk about former President uh, Donald Trump winning the Iowa caucus in what you could say is a landslide. Uh, 51% of the vote. Largest margin ever, I'm told. 98 of Iowa's 99 counties went Trump. Okay, I want to ask you, okay. any surprise here from the Republicans in the room? What do you think? Did this surprise you? Disappointment, general reaction? Well, I, first thing I'm going to say, um, I think it was anticipated Trump was going to win. It's probably a little bit more than I was hearing he was going to win. Um, but he had a double victory from my perspective. One, he won Iowa. And two, the second and third place choices, DeSantis and Haley, were so close to each other. Neither one got a message to drop out. Mm, so point. he gets the benefit, which is they're going to keep beating each other up going forward. And they, there's no uh, no rallying behind one opponent to Trump. And so he won twice. Shereen, I, I don't know what it means to be a Republican these days. Yeah, You know, that's a, 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 something that I think is not a controversial statement. Um, I did notice that there were about 110,000 uh, you know, votes placed. Sure. And there were 752,000 registered Republicans that could have voted. Of course, there were record cold temperatures, but not only is the Republican Party, you know, unrecognizable, but they didn't come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is about 6% of the didn't come. The electorate is my understanding. And and then look at all of the influence and attention that they got. Yeah. Raises a question about whether we should have it that way. In general, or start in Iowa? Because this is a debate Democrats have had. We shouldn't start in Iowa. Yeah. I mean, I'm okay if we start in Iowa occasionally, but we should randomly draw which state we are starting in and give every state equal chance of who's going to start it. There's a policy innovation. I like that. anchor right in Iowa every time, all the time, just drives bad policy when it comes to corn and other things like that. (laughs) Yes. It's also not representative of what the United States looks like. So when we think about demographics, Mm -hmm. age... Um, income. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. There are some things that I think are nice about Iowa. Frankly, the size. It would be incredibly different to see something like this play out in if the first state was California, for example, right, or Texas. But when we think about um, just the, or North Dakota or North Dakota, that would be another terrible state in terms of just representation. It is not reflective of the American electorate, truly. And so I, I I'm glad that Democrats have moved away from Iowa being first. But I do. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what I, I like the idea of pull out of a hat. <laughs> I, I'd like the opportunity that maybe sometimes Utah's first. What an idea. Well, I love your random idea because then it has some sense of fairness. I was disappointed Nikki Haley did not do better. It, it all honestly didn't surprise me because I, I mentioned on the program that I had watched Ron DeSantis town hall and I thought he did really well. And I, I think he's gotten better and better and better. Now we go to and I think that's because of Nikki. Okay. I mean, he's got yeah. a competitor that, yeah. that usually ups your game. We go to now to New Hampshire, and in ways that I'm really frustrated about, uh, Nikki Haley is pulled from a debate yes. saying, I won't debate unless Donald Trump debates. She's really trying to define that it's a two-person race. Yeah. 
uh, reaction to that? Um, so I, as much as I support the idea, I do think debates help us in understanding where um, particular candidates come down on issues, yes. I just don't think they're really um, engaged in with that much, mm-hmm. and her time is probably better spent. Town halls, going out, doing meet and greets, that kind of work. So, so I, you don't blame her. It I makes political sense. Her. It uh-huh. makes political sense. But I don't think what makes political sense is her claim that this is a two-person race. It is not. Um, and I have to actually go back also to Trump's margin. I, th- I know that we're saying it's a landslide. I understand that it's a large margin. But for him to really be the incumbent, if Joe Biden came out of Iowa with those numbers, it would not be a story about a landslide in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways, clearly he won, pulled away, did what many of the polls, the I think last Iowa register said he would do, he did. But in the kind of broader context, I don't think it was that strong of a showing. But I do think we're headed for a Trump-Biden rematch. Mm, yeah. You want to comment on Nikki Haley not debating? Um, you know, I think there's benefit to debate, but I think it's smart that she didn't because the simple fact is if Trump is the front runner, he needs to debate. And if he's not going to show up, a debate between the second and third place, whichever you want to pick as second and third, I don't think helps the process. And especially when they focus on beating up each other, if they really want to attack the front runner, he needs to be on the stage. Yeah. So I, th- I think it makes sense. All right. So let's talk about Democrats for a minute. And this is a local touch. But First Lady uh, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden visited Salt Lake City this week, uh, went to Hunter High School. I thought that was a proud, proud moment for our country, for our state and for Hunter High to have the First Lady visit. Yes, I think so, too. And I have to say it's nice that um, Abby Cox, so the um, wife of our governor, also participated in this. And I I do feel like when we kind of have these moments of talking about what Utah civility looks like, what it looks like to come together around issues, I appreciate her presence there. Good for Abby. Yeah. Yeah, good for Abby. Did you see any of the coverage of that, John? I'm assuming you weren't there. Uh, No. no. (laughs) Um, Not invited or decline. (laughs) Don't tell us. I was not there, but I did watch the coverage. And, you know, she spoke directly to the students about believing in themselves, spoke about the importance of education, and uh, I thought represented our country really well. So I thought that was terrific. Um, Okay, let's also talk one more thing just before we we jump off of that. Did you see, John, that the um, U.S. is still recording 1,500 COVID deaths each week. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, Clearly, we've all been impacted by COVID one way or another. Uh, It continues to go around in different forms and fashions. I think most of us are just living our lives as we normally did, Mm -hmm. but we still have that impact. Yeah. I'm starting to see this, um, you know, narrative creep into our dialogue that, you know, COVID almost didn't happen. And it's like, are you serious? And I, I just say to people that are kind of trying to downplay what COVID meant to to human health is just look at the death counts. Yeah, they were so abnormally high, and apparently they're they're still they're still there, and and it's typically people that aren't vaccinated. Yeah, unfortunately, I would just recommend that people. I feel like I'm still seeing, and I get that this is the community that I'm in, but I still am seeing people cancel things, wear masks, you know, show up uh, virtually if there's you know uh, an option to do that when they're not feeling well. Those small acts are community care. That's kindness, right? And mm-hmm. it, you may not have COVID. You may not believe in COVID, but you might have a nasty cold and nobody needs to get it. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, opportunity to reflect on just kind of personal practices and really help take care of each other. Yeah. One of the things I'm going to just highlight is we're getting more information about what the government knew and didn't know back when COVID was first happening. And, and so unfortunately, I think we're going to be paying the price because 
from my perspective, the government was too certain about something that was too uncertain. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that will cause skepticism and cynicism when a future uh, emergency or pandemic arises. Yeah. People are going to be skeptical. Whose shoulders we, do you put that on? Um, multiple players, but I think Dr. Fauci. Well, um, but you got to go higher than that, don't humility. you? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> don't you have well, to go to the president himself? Um, to a certain extent, yes, but to a certain extent, no, because, you know, he's not a medical doctor. And we yeah. have medical doctors out there making Just the cases saying for in a national crisis. six feet spacing and masks or no masks and this and that and the other. I'm just saying when you have the medical professionals, the folks that are supposed to be the experts on this, and all of a sudden you're starting to call into question what yeah. is going on. I would say uh, nobody, that nobody's looking to the president for medical advice. understanding how much uncertainty there is. Yeah, and, I also and that's just why have to humility say, matters. Yeah, but who was, the, who was the president that had the buck stops here? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. John F. Kennedy. Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Anyway, that's my point. It was Kennedy. I worked at Health and Human Services. You know, you're, you're an executive branch agency. You only do things with the permission of your principal, the president. Yeah. I just so. have to say this also works in reverse. When we think about the way that the AIDS crisis was dealt with, with a total silence from our leadership, there there's a lot that can be learned around crisis communication and health. But I hope that people will understand that COVID is real and take care of each yeah. other. John, I'm glad we went back to President Trump for just a minute. Uh, Mike Lee endorsed Donald Trump in the past week. Uh, if I understand it right, he did it on the Fox News show with uh, Laura Ingram. Um Maybe I'll read a quote. He said, the American people have a choice to make in this circumstance. They have a rare, historically unusual chance to choose between two presidents. They have a chance to choose between order and lawlessness. They have an opportunity to choose between putting America first and America last. I choose first and always to put America first. Okay, same, which is why I'll be supporting Joe Biden, right? Like, <laughs> let's get real. If you want to talk about order and chaos, can somebody please remind me where Mike Lee was when he was texting, asking to be told what to say in response to January 6th? I find this really disappointing, considering he's apparently quite an intelligent person. This does not feel like it serves our democracy, and I think it's an embarrassment. Why would he do this before we have a presumptive nominee? Um, I, th I think he thinks uh, Trump is going to be the nominee. And so there's so a certain benefit a of, early. of getting in early yeah. and helping that winner and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, there's there's the dynamic which he was not a Trump supporter back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and therefore, you know, he's come around to Trump. And, and to be blunt, from a Republican perspective, if you look at the nature of the economy today under Biden versus, you know, four years ago under Trump, uh, most Republicans would rather have the economy of four years ago. Mm -hmm. And so you look at those simple dynamics of just putting food on the table, roof over your head, so forth, those bread and butter issues, that matters a lot to folks. And that shifts every single time the party in control shifts. So when you ask Democrats if it was better or worse before, they're going to shift in the same way. That's not a unique trend that's happening, but it is. And I will say there are certainly trends that exist. But to suggest that that's a data point for it actually being worse or better, it just isn't. We know that if you go back and ask, right, <laughs> Democrats, if under Trump in those first years, if it was better or worse, they said it was certainly better before. So that I, I just I just have to I'm, put a little. No, hate. I'm just saying perception <laughs> is reality. And that is the perception. Sure. Shireen, I want to just take 30 more seconds in this segment and just mention that we did have the Lieutenant Governor Henderson and First Lady Abby Cox endorse Nikki Haley for president. Yes. Your quick comments on that. Well, how a, about yours? Because I feel like you're a Nikki Haley fan. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Nikki Haley fan. I, I think Abby Cox is incredible. I think uh, the, our Lieutenant Governor is one of my favorite elected officials. I think these are strong 
uh, great leaders, yeah. incredible women, and not surprised they so put there's their not, favor in Nikki. There's not much that Nikki Haley is saying that resonates with me, but one thing that she is saying that it, it is time for a generational change. And I do see that in her. And I it doesn't surprise me that Abby Cox and then also our Lieutenant Governor Henderson would also see that as a resonating message. Yeah. Let's take a brief break and then we'll talk about the 2024 general legislative session. I'm Natalie Gochner with Shereen Gorbani and John Dougal. Stay tuned. Shereen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gochner in the political center. This is both sides of the aisle and we're having a great uh, conversation about current issues with my my friends here. And John, I'm going to go to you first on this. Uh, Representative Blake Moore, of course, he's in an important uh, position now in House leadership, but he's proposed a bipartisan bill to revamp the congressional budget system. That's that's ambitious. Mm-hmm. What do that you know is, about it? Is. Well, one of the things I know is the congressional budget process is broken. <laughs> and we keep doing kick the can down the road over and over and over again. And they seem to only focus on what they call discretionary, which mm-hmm. is only about one third of the actual spending, maybe a little bit less than one third of the actual spending. They got something they call mandatory, but I call it autopilot that just keeps running out of control. Um, and so he wants to look at it more holistically, make sure everything is on the table. And my understanding is he's also looking at making sure the chairs of the various committees are aligning their revenue forecasts with the expenditures. So they can't yeah. just, just you know, we're going to spend whatever and then hope somebody else stitches it together at the end of the day. The other thing I've heard, and I haven't seen it in the bill yet, but my understanding is there's going to be an aspect where there's kind of a base budget. Mm-hmm. And there's a ratchet down of the base budget to a certain extent to say, okay, you can't just not have a budget. Something will be there. But it will ratchet down over time if you don't actually pass something. So to create an incentive for folks to actually get serious about about that. Yes. And in Utah, we've done something like that. Um, years ago, uh, Governor Walker really wanted a reading program. This is in uh, uh, 2004. And a couple of days before the end of the session, she basically threatened to veto the entire budget. And we were all trying to figure out what happens if we end the session with no budget. So the next year we came back and always adopt a base budget. Sometimes it's a decline of one, two, three percentage points. But we have something there just in case negotiations fall apart uh, through the session. Yeah. I guess I would just say grateful for Representative Moore, Congressman Moore, for doing something that's um, that's problem solving. Problem solving. That's policy. Bipartisan. Yeah. yeah. That uh, tries to put this country on the right direction. So impressed with him. I heard uh, Shireen recently that he's really enjoying his work back there. Well, so. bless his heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great. Good, that's good. <laughs> This is where you ask, what kind of insanity is there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm always. But, but one of the things, let's let's be fair. You can be uh, enjoy the work and still have to deal with the challenges of family and mm-hmm. other things like that. You know, it yeah. is a very difficult existence to and, be traveling back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, I'm going to call it geographic discrimination because we are absolutely discriminated against to be so far away from our nation's capital. Yeah, you want a random place of where to put the uh, yeah? Congress I don't know what to do about it, but. How about I, Iowa? I took. <laughs> I, I was in EPA right after Christy Todd Whitman and all the New Jersey, you know, EPAers, and they would go home on the weekend, easy, take the train, whatever. So much. The Some go home just Lake City during the day. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay, we've got the. Let's hear it for Virginia, though. Virginia <laughs> was really critical at the founding. The 2024 legislative session kicked off this week. Um, we had country music. Yeah. We had uh, two prayers from LDS leaders, one woman, uh, one man. Interesting. You know, in other years they have, uh, um, you know, different faiths, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of um, uh, different faiths represented up on Capitol Hill, but they had their prayers. Uh, 
I watched the news coverage of both the speeches of the speaker and the Senate president. Both of them quoted Ronald Reagan yeah. in their speeches, which is interesting Patron of the Republican Party. Yeah, it didn't surprise me coming from President Adams, a little different generation, and, and you know, just seemed like him. But, uh, but Mike Schultz did it as well. Yeah. So what, what are you seeing the tea leaves? Um, well, I think... Or the Diet Coke bubbles. Yeah, what the Diet you? Coke bubbles. <laughs> what they're saying to me is that we have... Well, uh, something that happened that I thought was interesting was, uh, I, I guess, Speaker Schultz asked people to say the reason that they are in this, right? Mm-hmm. Why did they decide to run for yeah. office? And he had them hold up. And he had them... half by 11 sheet of paper. Hold up that. pieces of paper that said it. I think for me, there a couple of things really stood out. I really loved the people who wrote Community. That resonated with me. I think, you know, we can kind of talk about all the different ways that people think about the work that they do. For me, it feels um, disingenuous to hear discussions about freedom, right, when we're talking about banning access to bathrooms, taking away books, uh, banning access to reproductive health care. So that doesn't feel like freedom to me. I find that one, you know, rubs mm-hmm. me the wrong way. But when people talk about really wanting to serve their community and make things better, mm-hmm. I see that person and I think that's a person I could work with, right? And so I really have just a big heart for all the people who took that seriously. And, and there's a number of photos on it. You can find them on local media. I suggest taking a look at it and seeing what your representative held up. Yeah, interesting. John, if I had to like put in a bottle what I'm seeing this session in the substantive camp, not all of the message bills and things, the things that get, you know, 80% of the attention, but housing, energy, infrastructure, particularly water infrastructure, um, Tax policy? Yeah, tax, tax policy, policy, a tax cut. Another tax cut. Another tax cut. Um, those are those are some of the big ones. Homeless services will get a really um, active debate, and I think some really um, unique and innovative policies will happen there. So I'm optimistic. Um, I believe in, in the process and in these folks. How so, would you, so, what would you put in that bottle? Well, well, let me ask you a quick question mm-hmm. before we move there. Um, clearly, Speaker Wilson, mm-hmm. former Speaker Wilson, has a very different personality and style mm-hmm. than Speaker Schultz. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me your thoughts as you as you work yeah. with and look at both of those. I, I think uh, Schultz is much more rough and tumble from my perspective, uh-huh, much more kind yeah. of a cowboy. So, I mean, I think Brad Wilson is the ultimate strategist, long-term thinker, extremely bright. Um, I think he distinguished himself in his service. Uh, Mike Schultz, he's I'm going to use the term that you hear, wicked smart. Mike Schultz is into the details, likes data. Um, I I think that he's uh, very good at uh, bringing people together, at least the real, I'm going to call them the the more reasonable. I mean, there's always gonna I, there's always gonna be people Outliers. on the far right and far left that aren't in your camp. But I think he's very good at holding together a good uh, group of well-meaning legislators. So I'm optimistic mm-hmm. about what he can do. But when you say rough and tumble, yeah, he's he's from Hooper, uh-huh. Utah. Yep, uh, home builder, um, grew up on the shore of Lake Great Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and uh, yeah, he's much more a brawler from my perspective. You watch different speakers, and some are much more suave and sophisticated, if you will, and others are much more rough and tumble. He's almost and always like in that. jeans, uh-huh. but wears a nice you know, jacket with it. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, so. he's, he's authentic yeah. to who he is yeah. and whatnot. But. Exactly. But he, he really dives into the policy. I mean, he and I were uh, talking about an issue that he's working on. I was trying to give him some more information because there was some stuff that he didn't fully understand. And so it needed he needed yeah. that information to understand kind of the breadth of, of his concern yeah. and stuff like that. So, so Shereen, I say I'm optimistic. Um, about a lot of the things that are going to be happening this session. There are some 
bills that are going to create a lot of controversy yeah. that aren't at the core of state government's functions, you know, yeah, education, right. roads, you know, tax policy. But the um, the diversity, equity, and inclusion bills, um, looks like Representative Katie Hall will be the lead. She's a Republican from South Ogden. Uh, this is a bill that um, gets rid of diversity statements, um, tries to uh, put together more emphasis on the marketplace of ideas on college campuses. Yeah. Read that as not to have self-censorship for conservative points of view. And then thirdly, to I don't think I would call it dismantle DEI. I think I would call it to um, refocus DEI on um, student success more broadly. Yeah. So this is part of a national trend that's happening with the Republican Party. Um, we uh, actually diversity and inclusion programs were long championed by Republicans until just a few years ago. So this is a change in the wind. And certainly that uh, current has also caught us here. I, I would just invite listeners to or think about it this way, potentially. For me, diversity is not something we choose or do not choose. Right. Diversity is we are and your data from, from this institute has said, right, that we're an increasingly diverse state. You can't just decide or dismantle diversity. Mm -hmm. It exists. I think the next questions are, what does it mean for people to have equitable access to our institutions, to find places where they feel included? And that does mean, for me, in a very serious way, all perspectives. When we start to move down the road of limiting ideas on campus. I don't think we're moving in the right direction. And I feel like right now there's a sense that, oh, this is uh, responding to some backlash that the right has experienced. But how quickly could that turn in the other direction as well? So I would just ask that we think very critically and really work to understand why it is that we're trying to challenge ideas around the notion that diversity exists, that equity is a, a shared value, right? And that inclusion is something that we would like to see as a marker of the places that we work and mm -hmm. learn. Um, I, I just I I'm disappointed in the way that this has been radicalized and really, really taken off the rails. Well, I agree with you about how it's been radicalized. I mean, too often we're seeing situations where if you're not of the right woke agenda, all of a sudden you're getting silenced. Yeah. Give me and, an example in Utah. In Utah? I can't. Give, give me an example where that's happened in Utah. Well, I mean, we're talking about this nationwide. And, and I was having a discussion this yesterday. This is in our state house. Yeah, but having a discussion. Yeah, but this is a nationwide agenda. So this, this is a law nationwide will fix the nationwide issue? No, no, this will fix it. It's not just in Utah. It's everywhere else. But what but we're doing, we're living in a world. You don't have an example are, of it are, in Utah. We are living in a world in which if you don't speak the preferred chosen thing, you start to get silence. And you have students that are going to school, even in Utah, that are afraid of what they might say. It will get crosswise with their professor. And so they are concerned about what they're going to say and their existence in school. That's not just in Utah. That's in other places. In a discussion the other day and talking about the Hamas-Israel war, okay? And if you're a Jewish student, all of a sudden, you know, folks are talking about Hamas and, and genocide and this and that and the other. And all of a sudden, you're feeling like you can't even talk about this because, you know, you're on the other side and you're feeling like you're it's not even safe for you to express a dissenting opinion. Okay. And that's the world we're living in. And so if it's about helping students succeed, I think pretty much everybody's on that board. But when it's viewed as certain students succeed at the expense of other students, that's where we get into the problem. That's where we get into the concern. And to a certain extent, nationwide, folks have overplayed this 
too far as a result. In a state with a Republican supermajority, where we frankly see Republicans winning across many districts in this in this state, right? I just find this to be uh, tying into a national conversation that's happening with very little actual consequences that are playing out in the way that it's being sold to us by right-wing oh, yeah. media. But, but that, this isn't just right-wing media. I mean, if you want to talk dynamics, I mean, John Johnson ran a DEI bill last session, okay? You go into the academic senates across the institutions here, and rather than trying to engage in a better discussion, a more productive discussion, they were out there vilifying Senator Johnson as a result of his concerns. Okay. okay, this is not a good example for our institutions of higher ed. This is a disgrace for our institutions of higher ed. I couldn't agree more, but I have to just say on the other side of this, the concrete example is that books that talk about queer kids, that talk about people of color, are being ripped out of districts like St. George, like Davis County. So the actual consequences of this really are coming down to an erasure of people's existence, and that is physically happening. And like, I'm sorry that he was picked on. I don't think the way that he was treated is correct. But I also have to say the actual consequences of what's happening are that kids' identities are being erased from their school environments because of this backlash okay, that's so, happening. So in the political middle, yeah. I will just say that, John, what I hear you saying is self-censorship is the biggest part of the problem. You're so conservative. Let's write a law about that. <laughs> and then the other thing I hear is, uh, well, that I would caution about is be careful of overreach. On both sides. Yeah. And I also would say try to avoid a lonely victory. Both sides have been getting these victories. EDI as it's set up has been a victory for one ideology. The dismantling of it will be a victory for another. If those victories are lonely, where you're not listening and taking into you know account other perspectives, different life experiences, it won't be good. That's right. Hey, we got to end there. Uh, great program. Uh, Anthony Scoma produced the program. So glad to be with you. Thanks for listening.